So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Sam wrote to me about three weeks ago, and he said, yep, Steve's teaching schedule looks great, but there's one problem. You got to strip these three verses out because they don't fit in either of the other ones. Somebody's going to have to do this, this service on these three verses. And I thought, well, what are these three verses? And so I went and looked, and I thought, well, that's a really cool, that's a really cool message. And um, I didn't think I would be delivering it. Um, and so I was looking for other people, and God just didn't work it out. And finally, the elders said, Steve, you're, you're the one who needs to do this. So here we are. Um, and so I'm, I come to you um, as, as ever humbled by the task that's before us, uh, because we're going to talk about the human heart. And uh, gosh, the human heart is, is ugly. It's ugly. But there's good news in all of this. So I want to start with, um, Philip Yancey wrote a book um, a while ago, What's So Amazing About Grace? And um, in this book, he, at one point, he, there we go, at one point he, he introduces um, a topic by telling this story. And so I want to read it to you. In recent years, audiences worldwide have watched a drama of forgiveness played out on stage in the musical version of Les Miserables. The musical follows its original source, Victor Hugo's sprawling novel in telling the story of Jean Valjean, a French prisoner hounded and ultimately transformed by forgiveness. Sentenced to a 19-year term of hard labor for the crime of stealing bread, Jean Valjean gradually hardened into a tough convict. No one, can be, no one could beat him in a fist fight. No one could break his will. And at last, after 19 years, Valjean earned his release from prison for stealing bread. Convicts in those days had to carry identity cards, however, and no innkeeper would let a dangerous felon like Valjean spend the night. For four days, he wandered the village roads seeking shelter against the weather until finally a kindly bishop had mercy on him. That night, Jean Valjean lay still in an uncomfortable bed until the bishop and his sister had drifted off to sleep. He then rose from his bed, rummaged through the family cupboard, and stealing their silver, and he crept off into the darkness. The next morning, three police officers, uh, three policemen knocked on the bishop's door with Valjean in tow. They had caught the convict in flight with the family's silver, and were ready to put him in chains, this time probably for life. The bishop responded in a way that no one, especially Valjean, expected. So here you are, he cried to Valjean. I'm delighted to see you. Had you forgotten that I gave you the candlesticks as well? They're, they're silver like the rest, and, and they're worth a good 200 francs. How could you have forgotten to take them? Valjean's eyes widened. He was now staring at the old man with an expression that no words really could convey. Valjean was no thief, the bishop assured the police officers. The silver was my gift to him. When the police had withdrawn, the bishop gave the candlesticks to his guest, who was now speechless and trembling. He said to him, don't forget. Don't ever forget that you have promised me by taking these, that you will use the money to make yourself an honest man. 
The power of the bishop's act, defying every human instinct for revenge, challenged John Valjean's life forever. A naked encounter with forgiveness, especially since he had never even repented, melted the granite defenses of his soul. He kept the candlesticks as a precious memento of grace and dedicated himself from then on to helping others in need. Hugo's novel stands, in fact, as a two-edged parable of forgiveness. You see, there was a detective named Javert, and Javert knew nothing but law and justice. And he stalks Jean Valjean throughout the novel, mercilessly over the next two decades. And as Valjean is transformed by forgiveness, the detective is consumed by his thirst for retribution. Eventually in the novel, Valjean saves Javert's life. And the prey showing grace to his pursuer is just too much. The detective senses his black and white world beginning to crumble. Unable to cope with a grace that goes against all instinct and finding within himself no corresponding forgiveness, Javert jumps off a bridge into the Seine River. One man who's transformed by sin into grace, and one man who's disgraced by his sin and chooses death, the human heart. The passage that, that uh, makes up these three verses is this, John 2, 23 to 25. And I, I want to set some context because so much of, of what is underlying with this is a repeating theme in John, and we'll be talking about John for quite some time now. It says this in, in, at the end of chapter 2. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust him. But Jesus did not trust them because he knew all about people's hearts. He knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about, the human, about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. So he's in Jerusalem, and he performs the, in Cana, which isn't Jerusalem, he performs the, the miracle that Sam talked about last week. And then he's in Jerusalem for Passover, and he's teaching and he's performing miracles. We don't know which miracles he performs, uh, we know that the turning the water into wine was the first one, but he apparently did some at, at, at his time there in Jerusalem. And people really liked what they saw. But the kind of the mystery of this, the way it reads is, Jesus doesn't accept them. He, he knows what's in their hearts and he knows what's going to happen. And we want to take a little closer look. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we enter into this, we just pray that your spirit would be here. It's a mystery how our hearts work. That we can be so broken and yet seek after you. And somehow you find beauty in that.
and are able to redeem us. Be with us, we pray that the Spirit would speak and give us what we need as we look at your scripture. Amen. So really we want to focus on three things. This condition that we have, all of us. We have, we have a spiritual condition, but God has provided for that. He knows about our spiritual condition and he has a provision for it. And then the important thing, lastly, is our response. How do we respond to this provision? In order to, to talk about this, I, I need to take a little bit of time to provide some context. And um, you'll find that almost any time I'm here, I'll always give you some historical context because it's what I love. But it, is also, helps us, it also helps us to understand what it is we're reading and, and what it is that's going on. You see, in, in, in Jewish culture, they have a high court, and it's called the Sanhedrin. It was the Sanhedrin that sentenced Jesus to death. And in the Sanhedrin, there's two dominant parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the reason this is probably worth taking some time is throughout the book of John, over and over and over and over, you're going to see Jesus talking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And quite honestly, it's never nice. In fact, there are times that it is so intense that he just, he, he literally, he, he calls them horrible things. He calls them sons of snakes. And, and there's this conflict that is between Jesus and the, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and it's so great that they kill him over it because they have so much to lose by what it is he comes and teaches. And so I want to explain that because that, that it works into the, the content of our hearts because what he's talking about in this passage is he's talking about the effect that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were having on people in Jerusalem and their hearts were so hard that Jesus, when he walked away, he knew they weren't going to follow him because he knew their hearts. The Pharisees first. So, so this, is the, this is the dominant party. They're in the Sanhedrin. The Pharisees first. I apologize for the size of this. I was working on multiple presentations this week and I realized this is almost useless to you. But nonetheless, I'll tell you about it. Um, now I've messed my notes up as well. well I'll just work from, from knowledge. So um, the Pharisees, now this is interesting. You've got you to try to follow this. The Pharisees are religious, okay? Um, stay with me because it's a little bit of hoop jumping here. They are religious and they believe in the supernatural, so they believe in angels, they believe in an afterlife, they believe in heaven, they believe in probably something like a hell, and, and so they, they, they've gotten all that, so you're with me, you're like, yeah, yeah, we get it, that's, that's all very basic, okay? But they also believed in something called the, the, the law of, well, law of Moses, we know what that is, that's the, 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 the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, they knew those very well, but they also believed in something called oral tradition. You see, it was the Pharisees, and I'll... I'll this is, a, I, could, I could spend too much time on this, so I'm trying to choose my words carefully. The, the Pharisees are the guys that oversee the synagogues. 
Now, synagogues emerge, and we don't really ever talk about the synagogues. But where do these synagogues come from? Remember when we talked, if you were here, when we talked about the tabernacle, and, and multiple people have referenced the tabernacle and what happened at the tabernacle. And Sam last week talked about what happened in the temple because when the Israelites were in the desert, they had the tabernacle. And then eventually uh, David was told to build the temple. Well, he was told to, to get ready to build the temple, but God didn't allow him to build the temple. He allowed his son Solomon to build the temple. David collected a billion dollars in today's real money to build the temple. That's how opulent it was. And in the temple was when the sacrifices that took place in the tabernacle then moved to the temple. Well, 600 years before the time of Christ, the Babylonians invaded and destroyed the temple. They burned it, everything left. And then, not only that, the Babylonians then took everybody and moved them all around. It's called the diaspora. They spread the Jews all around the Babylonian Empire to to defeat them. That's what they used to do with defeated peoples. They would just pick them up and move them and and spread them out in their empire, and then they could never raise up against them. And so the temple ceased to exist. And so the sacrifices ceased to exist because you had to sacrifice in certain ways with certain priests, and they lost all of that. And so this group emerged of teachers and really lawyers Because wherever the Jews were, they still kind of needed a place to worship. And think about it, they're not living in their country anymore. So they're losing their language, they're losing their traditions, they're losing their religion, they're losing all of these things. And so the synagogues are set up so that that won't happen. And in the synagogues, they teach, they teach Hebrew to the kids, and they teach them the Torah, they teach them all of the, you know, the first five books of the Bible and all the laws. And this new class emerges called the rabbinical class, the rabbis. And the rabbis are probably more lawyer than they are priest because they're really just looking at the law. But where they get into trouble is they started to say, you know, we can't quite understand this law, so we're going to explain it to you. And they started to add all of these traditions. And they started to say, for instance, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. So they actually had the number of steps that you could take on the Sabbath and not be working. If you ever went more, one step more, you were in violation of the Sabbath. And they literally created hundreds of these rules. Now, I believe that it was probably well-intentioned at the beginning. They're just trying to preserve their culture. But because they couldn't sacrifice anymore, sacrifice used to be what you got your forgiveness of sins from, because they couldn't do that anymore, guess what they turned to? You follow the commandments. And if you just do all of these things that we tell you what to do, you'll be fine. You'll, you'll satisfy God. And it became this really intense set of rules, and the Pharisees absolutely believed in them. And then the Jews go back to, um, they go back to, to Jerusalem. Well, eventually they get back to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the temple And the Pharisees don't go away. You would think that the Pharisees would have just kind of shrunk into non-existence. But no, no, the rabbis and the the synagogues, now we have the synagogues and we have the temple. And the temple is then run by another group, which are kind of the descendants loosely of the priestly class. And they're called the, are they with me? Sadducees. Thank you. Oddly, 
Let me see, anything else? Yeah, they were merchants and they were business owners. They were new money, the Pharisees. They were like, they had newly come into this power. And they were actually well-liked by many of the people. They had a lot of influence over the people. But the Sadducees, this is where it gets weird. The Sadducees, they believe in a literal interpretation of the Torah. So the Pharisees are interpreting the Torah and creating all of these rules. The Sadducees believe in a literal interpretation of the Torah. You cannot find in the Torah that angels exist. You cannot find concrete, it says there's heaven. You cannot find in the Torah concrete hell, angels, any of those things. Sadducees don't believe in them because it wasn't written in there in plain language. So they are <laughs> in charge of the temple because they are kind of, they, they say they're the historic priests. And because they were very political, they kind of aligned themselves with the, with the Romans. And so they kind of got to pick who the high priests were because the Romans, by the time of Jesus' time, the Romans would select the high priest and they would go to the Sadducees to find out who that is, a group that doesn't believe in an afterlife or anything. You know, you die, that's it, you're done. And that's who's in charge of the temple. They're families of the high priest. They're politically powerful. This is what you would call the old money. So these are kind of the traditionally wealthy families, influential families. They were not well-liked by the people. And they controlled the priesthood. So by the time Jesus is, is, comes to earth, this is the spiritual situation of the Jews. You've got these two groups that oversee religion. <laughs> One that just has this heavy, Jesus calls it a heavy yoke, all the rules that they couldn't follow. And the other one doesn't even believe in an afterlife. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in anything that they can't read in the five, first five books of the Bible. And so this is why when Jesus comes, you see over and over and over again, he's railing against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It usually reads Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Sometimes it's, it's both of them. Sometimes it's one of them. The interesting thing is they don't even like each other. They're always fighting together. But in Jerusalem, so Jesus is there. He's there for Passover. He, he does all of these miracles. And because the people, this is, these are their two options. Do either of these sound like a good option for you? No, these people are trapped. And so what they're looking for in Jerusalem is they're looking for a, a physical king. You know, like David or Solomon, because they believed that this physical king was going to release them from all of this. Release them from the, the Romans, release them from the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And actually, you can find in Scripture that when Jesus goes up into Galilee, far away from Jerusalem, the believers there are much more true to what he was looking for. The people in Galilee are the ones that often, after his resurrection, stay with him. The ones in Jerusalem kind of fall away. And that's what this passage in 23 to 25 is telling us. He knows they're not with him. They're infatuated by some, by some of these miracles, but they're not really with him. And he says, he knows their hearts. What scripture tell us about the human heart? This will be, this will be fairly quick. Jeremiah 17.9. Now the interesting thing is, um, 
we, we, we draw these passages from the Old Testament. The Old Testament in, in Genesis is when Adam and Eve sin. That's when sin enters the world. And so this, this is kind of all the way through. The condition of the heart is from Adam until Jesus, when it, when it starts to change. And in Jeremiah, it says this, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Now, I got to tell you, that does not encourage me. That is depressing. If that's all we had, we're in trouble. I would be getting what I deserve because of what's in my heart, but it gets better. Luke 6.45. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. Okay, so now we start to get some clarity. There is some goodness that can come out of a heart. It's not all bad like Jeremiah says. There is some goodness here. Now, this is, this is what's interesting. In, in Jeremiah, that passage in Jeremiah, it's talking about kind of what you, you, can, you can look good. You can do good deeds and look pretty good. But God doesn't really look at our deeds. He's looking at our heart. And so, and so Luke talks about that. And, you know, when I think about this, I, if, if my wife was here in the first service, and poor thing, it's a good thing my kids aren't here. They're going to have to hear stories about themselves all the time. You know, um, when you struggle relationally with someone, and it gets really, really in that really intense place, I will say things that I don't even recognize. I will say things so hurtful that I don't even know where it came from. And I've got enough psychology in my, you know, my college life and graduate school life that I could be a psychologist probably if I added them all up. And so I, I know how to analyze my mind and what I think and what I do, and I can actually get back to a place where I can dig deep enough to figure out where that came from psychologically, but I'm going to tell you it comes from a heart, that, that something is buried in the heart because I haven't guarded my heart, and I've just spewed this to my wife because it's there, and I haven't dealt with it. This is the passage. If you want to turn, this is, well, it's, we're not going to be here long, but uh, 835 in your pew Bible. Uh, I, I actually think this is quite funny um, because, because Jesus here, this passage, um, this, is, this is in Mark, and Jesus is teaching about inner purity, and when he's talking about this, you hypocrites, he's not, he's not preaching to people. Guess who he's talking to? Pharisees and Sadducees. He's talking to Pharisees and Sadducees, and he says this in verse 6. Uh, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce. They teach man-made ideas as commands from God. So what prompted this? Do you know what prompted this? The disciples had the audacity to eat something 
and not wash their hands. And the Pharisees had this rule that anytime you eat, you must be ceremonially clean, and so you have to go through a ritual of washing your hands, and the disciples weren't doing that. They were just picking stuff up and eating it. <laughs> and they asked Jesus, oh, you guys aren't, uh, why are your disciples not follow the uh, rituals of cleaning? <laughs> You're, you, you guys are a farce. You create rules, and you put them on people, and then you say they're from God. It gets, it gets a little bit better if you go down. So then he lectures them um, from 8 to 13. He gives this lecture, and we're not going to go over the lecture. But, but he, it's as though he gets exasperated with the Pharisees and Sadducees. He's, he tries to talk to them, and he knows he's talking to a wall. So he literally turns away from the Pharisees and Sadducees, and he calls the people that are there. <laughs> and this is in 14. Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. I'm talking to these guys. They're rocks. Come in here, come in here, come here. All of you listen and try to understand. It's not what goes into your body that defiles you. It's what comes from your heart. Forget about washing your hands. That's not going to make you unclean. What's in your heart, what comes out when you're talking to your wife, that's what's going to make you unclean. And then the disciples are right there. They don't get it either because they leave and they go into a house and then pick it up at 18. The, the, the disciples ask him about it. Hey, tell us about this parable you just told the Pharisees. And he says, don't you understand either? Can't you see that the food you put into your body cannot defile you? Food doesn't go into your heart. This is, this is it's kind of crude, but it's Jesus. What can you say? Food doesn't go into your heart but only passes through your stomach and then goes into the sewer. Verse 20. And it comes, it's, it's what comes from inside that defiles you. From, uh, for from within of a person's heart, and then he gives this long list of things. He's talking to the disciples. From within your heart, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, Lustful desires, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these vile things come from within. They are what defile you. The devil did not make you do it. It is in your heart. Okay. If we ended there, we would have a great legalism in our church. And uh, it would be depressing. And we would think, oh my goodness, we can't do this. But you know what? We can because he gives us a provision. And the beautiful thing is the provision doesn't come from the New Testament. So in other words, the provision was always there. It doesn't just come because Jesus comes. Because we hear about the provision in 2 Chronicles 16.9, and it says this, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. He searches the earth looking for people who are fully committed to him, and he strengthens their hearts. He is actively pursuing the people that are pursuing him. And then this next one's even better. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. Your filth will be washed away, and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit in you. 
I will take you out of your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. It was there the whole time through the Old Testament. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. Your heart is what's going to make you sin. Your heart is what's going to, when, it, when you're at your worst, it's going to come out. And here's the thing. He doesn't expect us to be perfect. And we're going to see from David in just a minute. Andy Stanley. So our response. We know what our condition is. He has given us an out. Guard your heart. I am seeking after you. I will purify your heart. I will give you a new heart. I will take away your stony, broken heart. Andy Stanley is a pastor in Atlanta. His father was a pastor in the South as well. Huge, huge church. And he writes this book, Enemies of the Heart. And he says this. The heart is the sphere where relationships happen. And it's the sphere where relationships are broken. Life can be hard on the heart. The world is full of outside influences that have the power to disrupt the rhythm of your heart. Most are subtle. Some may even appear to be necessary as protection from further disruptions. Over time, you develop habits that slowly erode your heart's sensitivity. The inevitable pain and disappointment of life have caused you to set up walls around your heart. Much of this is understandable. But at the end of the day, there's no way around the truth. Your heart is out of sync, and there's, and there's your, your heart is out of sync with the rhythm that it was created to maintain. So let me ask you, how are things with your heart? Perhaps the major reason we rarely stop to monitor our hearts is that it was never encouraged. Let me explain that. As children, we were taught instead to monitor not our hearts but our behavior. In other words, we were taught to behave. If we behaved properly, good things happened, regardless of what was going on in our hearts. If we misbehaved, not so good things happened. My parents believed in spanking. The not so good things got my attention early. I modified my behavior to avoid pain, and I've been doing that ever since, and I bet you have too. Pain, embarrassment, fines, and spankings are generally considered effective ways to focus an individual's attention on his or her behavior. Consequently, you and I have become uh, much better at monitoring our behavior than our hearts. But it's not just the avoidance of pain that drives us. Good behavior can actually be rewarding. You can have an evil heart and your behavior can actually be rewarded. He learns it because he says, as a professional Christian, a pastor by trade, I am paid to be good. So I've learned to modify my words and behavior so as to not damage my reputation and thus my career. You've no doubt done the same thing. Whatever your job, there are some things you just won't do. Not because you don't want to, but because of the professional ramifications. Perhaps there are some words and phrases you won't use in spite of the fact that they would actually convey what you're feeling. I'll bet there are some of you that pretend, that there are some people that you pretend to like because it's beneficial to you. All of that is fine, more than fine. It's actually necessary. You have to do that. 
But all of this pretending can be problematic because pretending allows you to ignore the true condition of your heart. As long as you say the right thing and do the right thing, you're tempted to believe that all is well. That's what your childhood experience taught you. But when your public performance, when your public performance becomes too far removed from who you are in your heart, you've been set up for trouble. Eventually, your heart, the real you, will outpace your attempts to modify and everything you to modify everything you say and do. The unresolved issues stirring around undetected in your heart will eventually work their way to the surface. Specifically, they'll seep into your actions, your character, and your relationships. If your heart goes unmonitored, whatever thing is growing there will worsen to the point that you're no longer able to contain it and carefully manage your words and behavior. So let me ask you again. How's your heart? The best example the most encouraging example we have is David. David. We're told that that he was a man after God's own heart. David was a man after God's own heart. But he was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He did bad things. He had an affair, conceived a child, and then sent the woman's husband to the front lines and told his army to withdraw so he would be killed. And we're told this is the man after God's own heart. Obviously that was in his heart, but there's some other things in David's heart. And in Psalm 32, he writes this. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me and all my guilt is gone. How's your heart? Today, we want to move to communion. There's really two ways that we're cleansed, through blood and through washing. The blood of Christ has covered our sin. We sang about it this morning. Our sins are washed and clean. As believers, we're forgiven, but the hardness of our hearts can create a problem as the Holy Spirit tries to work in our lives. If you've never accepted Christ, perhaps God's calling you today to something. If you know him, Today, God wants you to focus on the true condition of your heart as we come to the communion table. Communion is important because it's a command to remember. Jesus wants us to remember every time we taste bread and wine, and even when we sit at our own tables in our houses, 
that it's he who provides all that we need. He gives us the physical food that we need to survive and the spiritual nourishment we need to keep taking our next steps with him. Communion is for those who, accept, who have, have accepted the gift of, of salvation. It's not for everyone. It's for those who have accepted the gift of salvation. At Bethany, we practice open communion, which means if you know Jesus, we encourage you to participate, even if you're not a member, even if it's your first time. If you know Christ, this is, this is not about Bethany. It's about your relationship with him. If you're not sure of your relationship with Jesus, I would ask you to pause, maybe to pray and just observe for the next few minutes. Perhaps God is speaking to you now, and I would love to pray with you. Introduce you to Jesus. Have an opportunity when we're in the midst of this if you come down and see me. All throughout our congregation, there's a multitude of needs. People who are hurting, angry, disappointed with the circumstances that surround you, concerns about family members, broken relationships, people that have hurt you, the colleagues that you find hard to love, the family member who you're distant from, God doesn't want you to carry these things. He does not want you to carry these things. He wants you to pin them to the cross. He wants you to allow the Holy Spirit to wash over them and to soften their sting. We want to spend some time in prayer and confession prior to taking communion. We're taught not to approach God in communion with sin in our hearts. Let's spend some time to tend to the true condition of our heart by confessing sin, handing our struggles over to God and seeking a purified and new heart that Ezekiel talks about. Sometimes a deliberate act is helpful and we're going to do something deliberate this morning. As you came in, you may have received a piece of paper. Looks like this. Joel told me he missed some people, so Joel's going to come forward if you need one. There's some here. Joel has one. He'll give it to you. With these, take a few minutes to pray and ask God to reveal to you what areas you need to turn over to him. I would ask you to write them down and to do one of two things. Pin them to the cross or deposit them into one of these two containers that have water in them. Use this time as a time of confession and submission to what God's calling you to do. These are private. They're not for anybody else. It's between you and God. God knows your heart. He knows your struggles. He knows things that you don't yet know. But confession is a large part of how he works in us. If we don't confess, guys, it's going to still be there. On the cross, they're given to Jesus and ultimately they're covered by his blood. In the water, they dissolve and they're never to be seen again, which is exactly what he does with sin. The altar is open. If you want to come and pray, you can work your way to the back and stand by yourself. You can pray right in your pew. You can find another person to pray with. You can pray privately. There will be music playing. And once your time of prayer and confession is complete, there's four stations for communion. One here, one over in that corner, and then two each in the back corners. Please go to the communion table. Find one that's open or the line's maybe not too long. And then there will be this passage on the screen. And if you could meditate on this as you partake of the, the bread and the wine.
come, let's spend some time together with the Holy Spirit.